0: Well, good morning, church family, on this fifth Sunday in the season of Lent. You know, whenever anyone of us is in an unfamiliar place or in a group of people that we don't know, we always look for our people. Whether it's the first day of school and we walk into the classroom and don't know anybody there or... We start a new job and, and meet all of these new co-workers, or whether we visit a church for the first time. We look for our people, people we can relate to, people we might share something in common with. Being in a group without finding our people can be lonely. We can feel awkward, anxious. was thinking about this about a year ago. I was serving as an ordination assessor at a pastor ordination retreat. This was a four-day retreat for men and women preparing to become pastors within our network of churches that we're part of here at Glenkirk. And occasionally, our network asked me to be part of the evaluation process of new pastors. And each of these candidates at these retreats are at the end of their ordination journey, and they attend this retreat to to get a final evaluation of their readiness to be called as a pastor. And so, as you can imagine, their anxiety is pretty high at this retreat. And at this particular retreat a little over a year ago, uh, most of the candidates were in their 30s and their early 40s, a couple of them in their 20s, just out of seminary, But there was one candidate that seemed different from all the others. He was older than most of the other candidates, and he seemed more anxious and uncomfortable at the retreat. So we sat down and had lunch on the second day of the retreat, and as we talked, I discovered that he was in law enforcement. He'd spent his career as a state trooper, and he was pursuing pastoral ministry as a second career as he neared retirement from law enforcement. And as we had lunch together, I uh, told him that I had uh, been a police chaplain for 11 years when I was pastoring at my first church. And as we talked about my experiences as a chaplain, his tension began to just melt away because he felt like he had found his people. In fact, on the last day of the retreat, he gave me a uniform patch, which is a gesture of respect and mutuality within law enforcement community. He's now ordained and serving as a pastor. Whenever we're in a group, we look for our people. But when we become followers of Jesus, who exactly are our people? We're in a series during the season of Lent called Welcome to the Story. During Lent, we've been looking at how the Exodus story in the Bible becomes our story through our faith in Jesus. So far, we've looked at our plight, our deliverer, our sacrifice, and our baptism. And today, we're going to talk about our people from Exodus chapter 19 and then from 1 Peter chapter 2. So I want to invite you, if you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word, beginning in Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 8, and then we'll look at 1 Peter 2, verse 9. On the third day, or first day of the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back down and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. Then 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You can be seated. We pick up the Exodus story three months after Israel left Egypt. Their slavery in Egypt is now in their rearview mirror. They are redeemed. They have been set free from their slavery. And God guides them through the desert and the Sinai Peninsula to the base of Mount Sinai. And as Israel camps at the base of the mountain, Moses hears God calling him from the top of the mountain. And so like a solo mountaineer, my hero, Moses ascends the mountain to connect with God. God has an offer for Israel. Israel has already been freed from their slavery. Their redemption from Egypt was a gift of grace without conditions. God carried the people of Israel to freedom like mother eagles carry their helpless chicks on their wings to safety. To use the language of the New Testament, the people of Israel have been saved by grace through their faith. But Exodus chapter 19 marks a significant transition in Israel's relationship with God. And that transition is encapsulated in verse 5 with two words, now if. Now if. Now that they have been saved from their slavery... Now that they have been redeemed, now that they have been set free by grace, God offers Israel a different kind of relationship. And in verse 5, this relationship is called a covenant. In the Bible, a covenant is like a treaty or a binding agreement between two people or two parties. And the Bible is filled with covenants. Understanding these covenants is an essential part of understanding the flow of the Bible from beginning to end. And some of these covenants are one-sided, where one party unconditionally promises to take care of the other party, no strings attached, expecting nothing in return. These one-sided covenants are called covenants of grace. But other covenants are two-sided, conditional covenants, where two parties promise to do something for each other. And these two-sided covenants, these conditional covenants, are called covenants of works. And the covenant that God offers to Israel in Exodus 19.5 is a two-sided, conditional covenant a covenant of works, indicated by that word, if, now if. This covenant God is offering to Israel is often called the Sinai covenant because it took place on Mount Sinai. And the Sinai covenant is not about the people of Israel's salvation. They've already been redeemed, saved by grace through faith. The Sinai covenant is about their identity as a nation among the other nations in the promised land. And as a covenant of works, Israel is called to obey God completely to fulfill the terms of their side of the covenant, and God in turn pledges to make Israel his treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation among the nations. All three of God's descriptions of Israel in verses 5 and 6 relate to their existence as a nation among the nations. As God's treasured possession, Israel would be unique from all of the other nations, the object of God's special blessing and his special protection. As a kingdom of priests, Israel will become a kingdom, a political entity with leaders and laws and armies and borders and a temple and a government. But their role among the nations will be a priestly role to represent God and to represent God's ways to all the other nations. And they will be a holy nation, a nation that is called to embody and live out the holiness of God among the other nations. Remember, the people have already been saved by grace. That has not changed. But now they're offered something different, a national covenant based on works. In Michael Horton's book on covenant theology, he says that Israel's national status in the land depended on them fulfilling the terms of the Sinai covenant. This is a covenant of works. And the leaders of Israel agree to this covenant of works. And this is where Israel goes from being a people to becoming a nation. And the people pledge, in verse 8, we will do everything, the Lord has said. And everything is what a covenant of works requires. The New Testament often calls the Sinai Covenant the law because it's based on obedience to all of the laws that God will give Israel as a nation. And eventually, when all is is done, God will give the nation of Israel more than 600 different laws that they must keep in order to fulfill their side of the Sinai Covenant. They must obey these laws fully according to verse 5. Their status as a nation depends on it. Now, if. But then our passage out of 1 Peter takes the same language that we encounter here in Exodus 19 and applies it to the church. Now, when 1 Peter was written, Israel as a nation barely existed anymore. Their borders had shrunk. They were under Roman occupation, subject to Roman taxation. Just a few years after 1 Peter was written, the the people of Israel would rebel against the Romans, and the Romans would destroy their temple in Jerusalem and drive the people of Israel out of their land. Jesus himself predicted that this would happen when the leaders of Israel rejected him as their messiah. And so the Apostle Peter, who is writing to the church that is comprised of people who are mostly non-Jewish, some are Jewish, but most are not, calls the church a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. The way God describes Israel in Exodus 19 is now applied to us as followers of Jesus. Are part of Jesus' church. Through Jesus, we are grafted into the story of Israel. We are brought into the story. Welcome to the story. Israel's story becomes our story. Now, I need to explain this carefully because it's easy to misunderstand what it means. And, and some of this confusion is caused by the fact that there is a nation called Israel today in the Middle East. After Rome destroyed the Jewish temple and drove the people of Israel out of their land, for centuries, the people of Israel lived around the world without a homeland, scattered among the nations. But then in 1948, some Jewish people retook some of that land and became a nation once again. A nation with their own government and their own borders and laws and so on and so forth. And so when we hear the word Israel we tend to think of the modern Israeli state that you can locate on a map. But however we might interpret the significance of the modern Israeli state, that's not what I'm talking about today. When I talk about Israel's story, I'm talking about their story in the Bible. We have been grafted in to the story of Israel in the Bible So to unpack this, let me give you a quick overview of kind of biblical covenant theology. In the book of Genesis, God makes a promise to Abraham and Sarah to use their descendants to eventually bring salvation to all the rest of the world. That promise comes in the form of a covenant with Abraham and with Sarah. Some people call this the Abrahamic covenant, and it is a one sided, unconditional covenant of grace. It is based on God's promise to bless Abraham and Sarah, to bless their descendants, to make them into a great nation, and then through one of their descendants to bring salvation to all the other nations of the world. It's a covenant of grace. Abraham and Sarah's failures, and they were many, did not nullify this covenant. Their descendants' failures, and there were many, did not invalidate God's promises. In fact, when Israel was suffering in slavery in Egypt and they cried out to God for help, according to Exodus 2.24, God responded to their cry for help because of His faithfulness to His promises to His covenant with Abraham and Sarah. The Exodus was a result of God's unconditional covenant to keep His promises The New Testament identifies Jesus as that future descendant of Abraham and Sarah who will bring God's salvation to all the nations. Through his perfect life, his atoning death, and his bodily resurrection, God offers salvation to the world through Jesus. And when we trust in Jesus, we share in this covenant of grace. We become part of Abraham and Sarah's family according to the New Testament. But at Mount Sinai, Exodus 19, Israel enters into a different kind of covenant a conditional, two sided covenant, a covenant of works that relates to Israel's national existence among the nations. They are redeemed from their slavery in Egypt by grace through faith, but they will only be able to live in the land as a nation among the nations by their obedience to the laws of the Sinai Covenant. Their national existence was conditional upon their works. And as you read the Old Testament, you see that as a nation, they were never able to keep up their side of the Sinai Covenant. Again and again they failed, and again and again they experienced the consequences of that failure. Lost territory, conquered by other nations, exile, eventually losing their land entirely. Not one generation of Israel was able to fully keep the Sinai covenant. And according to the New Testament, that was part of the point. This covenant of works revealed that no one can establish a relationship with God out of their obedience based on what they do. We cannot be made right with God by works. A relationship with God is either grace or nothing. Galatians 2.24 says that the Sinai covenant was like a temporary guardian over Israel until the Messiah arrived. The the provisions of the Sinai covenant, the the temple and its sacrifices, the laws, the, the land, these were all types and shadows that were pointing to the coming of the Messiah, to the coming of Jesus. And then Jesus arrived. And Jesus arrived to establish the new covenant. The types and shadows of the Sinai covenant find their reality in Jesus, the Messiah. The the new covenant was simply a continuation of the covenant of grace that God has established with Abraham and Sarah. But in order to establish the new covenant, Jesus had to address the Sinai covenant. So Jesus kept all of the requirements of the Sinai covenant. Jesus succeeded in keeping all of the laws where every generation before him had failed. Jesus did what his ancestors had failed to do. And this is why the New Testament says that Jesus fulfilled the law, because he kept the Sinai covenant in its entirety. And by keeping the Sinai covenant, Jesus made it obsolete. This is the whole point of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Now, some of the Jewish people of Jesus' day believed that the Sinai covenant was eternal rather than temporary. They, They believed that if the Sinai covenant was no longer enforced, then Israel was done. After all, this was their national identity, their political identity as a nation among the nations, and you can imagine how difficult that might be to let go. And this is why some Jewish Christians insisted that non Jewish people who became followers of Jesus be circumcised and keep all of the laws of the Sinai covenant in order to live as Christians. But throughout the New Testament, in the book of Galatians, in the book of Romans, in the book of Hebrews, The Bible teaches again and again that the Sinai covenant was temporary. It was conditional. It was filled with types and shadows that are fulfilled by Jesus. It was never intended to make people right with God. Instead, it was a covenant of works to establish Israel as a nation among the nations. That God's unconditional covenant with Abraham and Sarah supersedes the Sinai covenant. So we are made right with God the same way Abraham and Sarah were made right with God. By God's grace, by faith in the God who keeps his promises. No one was ever made right with God by the Sinai covenant because it was never intended for that. And it's because of God's covenant with Abraham and Sarah that we are now part of the story of Israel. Not Israel, the nation, but Israel, the people, people redeemed by grace through faith because of God's covenant promises. These are our people. So let me just mention a couple of implications of this. First, as part of Israel's story, we are called God's own people. We are part of the people of God. We are called God's own people. In the New Testament, Israel consists of God's people of every generation, Jewish and non-Jewish alike, who have been saved by God's grace, by their faith in God's promises. These are our people as Christians. We are part of a people who are chosen by God, His treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation because of our trust in Jesus. See, this holy nation of 1 Peter 2.9 is not any nation that you can find on a map today. In the Bible, the only country on a map that that's ever applied to was the nation of Israel, and Exodus 19.5 says that they would only remain that if they did everything the Lord required. And when they didn't, They were eventually evicted from the land and lost that status. The people of Israel, still beloved by God, still offered salvation by grace through faith in God's promises, but as a nation forfeited the promises offered to them in the Sinai covenant because they failed to live up to their side of a covenant of works. Because this covenant is no longer in force, because Jesus kept it and fulfilled it. Now, there have been times when other nations have tried to claim and apply the description of Exodus 19 to their own country. It's happened in the United States, happened in England, in Spain, in Brazil, in Germany, in South Africa, all at varying times. But Israel is the only nation the Sinai covenant ever applied to And that covenant is no longer in force. So now it's anyone who trusts in Jesus, no matter where they live, who are called God's own people. Jesus' church around the world are God's chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's treasured possession. You know, the average Christian in the world today, if you just look at averages, is not an American. The average Christian in the world today is a woman in her 20s with black or brown skin living somewhere in sub-Sahara Africa. Just based on averages. These are our people. We are called God's own people. Secondly, Because we're part of Israel's story, we are commanded to live differently. We are commanded to live differently. The church is called to embody God's holiness in the world. Because of the conditional nature of the Sinai covenant, Israel's national identity was based on their works. And the Sinai covenant, again, required 100% obedience. James 2.10 describes it this way. Whoever keeps the whole law the Sinai covenant, but stumbles in just one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. That's how a covenant of works works. God gave the nation of Israel more than 600 of those laws. These laws revealed what God expected of them as a nation, but those laws were powerless to empower Israel to do what God expected of them. Those laws were like an MRI machine that diagnoses the disease, but it can't treat the disease. It can only show you what's wrong. The the law, the Sinai um, uh, Covenant revealed what God required, but was powerless to help us live what God required. But then Jesus came and did everything that God required and offered us a covenant of grace. And in this new covenant of grace, God sends the gift of the Holy Spirit to live within us and among us to empower us to grow into holiness. There are a lot of opinions today about why Christianity is declining in American culture and throughout Europe these days, and some people blame the atheists, or the liberals, or the socialists, or the communists, or the media. And those groups, certainly many of them, are not friendly to Christians. But you know, in many of the places of the world where the church is exploding in growth, those same groups exist. Yet it's not stopping the church's growth. The church is declining because Christians aren't living differently, embodying God's holiness. We are called to live differently. Third and finally, we are commissioned to advance God's plan to our generation. We are commissioned. Israel as a nation had a temporary role to fulfill in advancing God's plan. Jesus came to the world through the nation of Israel. Thanks be to God for Israel. May we never take that for granted or neglect that gift. But in our generation, we are commissioned to share the message of Jesus with the world. In fact, we call it the Great Commission because Jesus commissioned us. It's our mandate to share his message and his love with our neighbors and with our our nation and ultimately with our world. It's encapsulated in that word invite. We see it every week when we come in. This is our mandate as God's people. We are commissioned to advance God's plan in our generation, even as Israel wasn't theirs. So through Jesus, we become part of Israel's story, not as a nation, but as a people. These are our people. These are our ancestors. Like the people of Israel, we have been redeemed, saved by grace through our faith. Through Jesus, God has carried us on eagles' wings and brought us out of our slavery to sin, evil, and death. And so that we are part now of a chosen people around the world, a royal priesthood, a holy nation among the nations and within the nations, God's special possession. God calls us, His people that we belong to Him, commands us to live differently and commissions us to advance God's plan in our generation. And so when we're in a crowd and we wonder who our people might be, what should we look for? Well, through Jesus, the scope of our people is much larger and greater than we ever imagined it might be. Our people consist of anyone and everyone who has been saved by grace through faith. Everyone who's part of the story. Some might look and speak differently than we do. Some might have very different stories than we do, come from different backgrounds than we do. But because we are all grafted into this same story of Israel together, these are our people. Welcome to the story. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Israel. Thank you for your faithfulness to your promises to Abraham and Sarah. And thank you for showing us, Lord, that no one can establish a relationship with you based on their obedience, based on what they do. That it's all by grace. Thank you for Jesus, who came to fulfill the law, to do what we were unable to do, to do what Israel was unable to do, and to welcome us into a people that you have called your own, that we might be priests to represent you to the world around us, that we might grow into holiness be more like Jesus. We might belong to you. Lord, that is our calling. That is our privilege. And we thank you for your gift of grace. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.